Hey, welcome to the 1505 Club. In recent years, there's been an increase in the number of people who are diagnosed with a form of Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome. Not coincidentally, there are now 13 different subtypes of Ehlers-Danlos. When I was a student, there was really only one. Along with these increased subtypes come some very real issues we need to be aware of, and that opens a door to a conversation that we rarely have, even though we need to. So let's talk about Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome. As I already mentioned, Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome has 13 subtypes, and the latest one was discovered as recently as 2018. At its core, it's a connective tissue disorder involving collagen production that primarily affects the skin, joints, and blood vessel walls. The most common complications include aortic dissection, joint dislocations, scoliosis, chronic pains, and early osteoarthritis. Now that's the definition you can find on Wikipedia or the Mayo Clinic's website or anything that you can find on the internet. It's informative, but it doesn't dive into the clinical features that clinicians need to look for. My own awareness began with a patient who was involved with a car accident. She didn't know that she had Ehlers-Danlos or that it ran in her family. What was interesting was that shortly after the accident, her gut health fell apart on her. We also found out that her atlas adjustments were not holding for very long at all. I don't want to tell too much more about her story, but she did get it genetically tested at UCLA, and that's how she got the diagnosis of Ehlers-Danlos. I thought this was a rare thing, so I feared it was one case, but, it was, but I wasn't aggressively looking for any other cases. At this point right now, several years later, I currently have four patients who have been diagnosed with Ehlers-Danlos, and I suspect that I have others who have hypermobility issues as well, but they just aren't diagnosed yet. So the first thing I want to talk about is the unique issue that arises in the upper cervical area of people who have EDS, as it is frequently called. There's a condition that arises frequently in people with EDS that Dr. Ross Hauser refers to as BTO. BTO stands for Brain Toilet Obstruction. I know that name's comical upon first hearing it, but its consequences are actually quite severe. I've talked about this a bit in a pit class that I did for the Gonstead Extravaganza several years ago, but not to the extent that I'm gonna do today. The medical term for BTO is chronic cerebrospinal venous insufficiency. There's an intricate network of lymphatics and veins that are responsible for draining cerebrospinal fluid from the brain. The reason why this is necessary is because even the normal metabolism of the brain produces waste products that can be toxic to the brain. In the case of a head injury, such as a motor vehicle accident, the trauma to the brain produces even more of these waste products. The metabolic waste products themselves are toxic to the brain, and this necessitates the need to eliminate them. This elimination is done on a continual basis through the drain, which is located at the base of the skull at the beginning of the jugular vein. If you're astute, then you've certainly already asked yourself, hey, isn't that the same location as the atlas? The same atlas that's notorious for including the jugular foramen? The same jugular foramen that contains the vagus, accessory, and glossopharyngeal nerves? Why yes, yes it is. And if the atlas has the ability to affect cranial nerve function, could it also have the ability to affect cerebrospinal drainage into the jugular vein? Under normal circumstances, the answer is no. But we aren't talking about normal circumstances. We're talking about Ehlers-Danlos syndrome, or what we might prefer to think of as extreme hypermobility or joint laxity. The fact that this dysfunction is not possible under normal circumstances and only possible under special circumstances is most likely the reason 
why it's so frequently missed and dismissed without being considered as a potential cause. The least severe form of Ehlers-Danlos is also the most common form of Ehlers-Danlos, and it involves hypermobility in the absence of most other symptoms. So let's take a moment to talk about hypermobility. In the Gonstead model, we tend to think of hypermobility as an adaptation to subluxation hypomobility. So we tend to dismiss it knowing that if we correct the subluxation, the hypermobility will correct itself. That's true with one notable exception. The exception is in the upper cervical spine. I believe this has to do with the uniqueness of the atlantoaxial joint and the fact that the C1 vertebra is the only vertebra that subluxates anterior. In addition to that is the fact that the instantaneous axis of rotation for the TMJ is the anterior base of the odontoid process of C2. Not coincidentally, people with Ehlers-Danlos syndrome tend to have a lot of problems with both the TMJ and the C2 vertebra. The point being, when working with a patient with Ehlers-Danlos hypermobility, it's of paramount importance to pay close attention to the C2 vertebra, C1 vertebra, and the TMJ. The key here is that there's a strong temptation to focus on the C1 vertebra, which will probably be misaligned. The problem is that if you adjust it, and you'll likely find that you have to do it again, and again, and again, this is because of the hypermobility. So the frustration is that you can create better biomechanics and range of motion, but you can't create stability by adjusting C1 alone. <clears throat> this is why the real key to these cases is to pay very close attention to C2. People with Ehlers-Danlos are particularly vulnerable to having problems with C2, and this is because of the fact that opening of the jaw requires flexion of C2. During this flexion phase, C2 is vulnerable, and it's stabilized normally by ligaments like the atlantoaxial ligament. When there is joint laxity, hypermobility, caused genetically by Ehlers-Danlos syndrome, the C2 is left vulnerable to misalignment and subluxation, with the consequent result of brain toilet obstruction. Now you might be wondering, what is the consequence of brain toilet obstruction? A 2022 study by Carolina Beza Velasco et al. found that in a group of 35 women with hypermobile EDS, 11, that's 31.4% of them, had attempted suicide, and nearly half of them were at an increased risk for suicide. This is the number one risk factor for brain toilet obstruction, and, therefore, Ehlers-Danlos syndrome, and it's highly ignored, especially by the medical establishment. It's often amazing to me how psychological problems are almost always assumed to be a thinking problem and that talk therapy is the solution. Our modern system generally ignores all signs of depression or anxiety being a physiological problem. Unfortunately, people with Ehlers-Danlos are often accused of being crazy or they're told to just get over it because it's all in your head. Well, it literally is in their head or rather just below it. I wanted to talk about this today because I fully suspect that more and more patients will be diagnosed with this condition in the coming years. The other reason is because this condition forms a very defined clinical picture. With Ehlers-Danlos hypermobility, you want to make sure that C2 is functioning properly, but you also want to avoid the trap of over-adjusting the C1 and increasing the hypermobility, which for them is the cause of their symptoms. One of the questions that's commonly asked by patients is, how do I tighten up the ligaments if they're not doing their job. For people with EDS, prolotherapy is a viable option. My best explanation of prolotherapy is that you inject an irritant into the ligament which causes the ligament to respond by tightening. 
the most common irritant is simply dextrose, or sugar. However, from my research, it appears that some groups have their own proprietary blend, which they use for the irritant, and many of them claim better results based on their unique recipe, if you will. Again, Ross Hauser, MD, is one of these, and his Caring Medical specializes in prolotherapy for people with EDS. They call it the H3 technique, named for doctors Hackett, Hemwall, and Hauser. This is one example of proprietary prolotherapy, and Dr. Hauser has a number of videos on YouTube if you're interested in learning more. With Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome, patients will often come in with a history of upper cervical injury, like a motor vehicle accident or even a slip and fall. All signs and symptoms will typically look like an upper cervical injury, and it's very easy to come to the conclusion that atlas should be adjusted. If you adjust the atlas in this case, and it's the wrong thing to do, you'll find that the adjustment does not hold. However, there's one other symptom, which we've not discussed to this point, which will also get worse. Typically, the EDS patient with an upper cervical injury will experience gut issues. If you adjust a hypermobile C1 on an EDS patient, those gut issues are likely to get worse. So let's take a step back and ask the question, why do they have gut issues? The answer is, when the atlas moves enough to create brain toilet obstruction due to hypermobility, it also moves enough to encroach on the jugular foramen and the three cranial nerves that live inside. I've already mentioned them before, so you should have them memorized. But they're the glossopharyngeal, the vagus, and the accessory nerves, cranial nerves 9, 10, and 11. Glossopharyngeal is involved in swallowing. And while a swallowing disorder may not be immediately obvious to you, especially in its early stages, these patients will often have issues with coughing or choking, especially when eating. Those symptoms can also correlate with a tongue tie, but that's a topic we'll cover at another time. I say that simply to point out that the symptoms are not pathognomonic, but they do exist. Typically, the patient will be choking on their own saliva, so the choke can happen at any time, but especially when lying down or eating. The accessory nerve provides innervation to the sternocleidomastoid muscle and the upper trapezius. There are two types of torticollis, spasmodic and non-spasmodic and it's the atlas affecting the accessory nerve that causes the spasmodic torticollis. Not coincidentally, I've been noticing more and more patients who are complaining about unilateral neck pain and difficulty swallowing post-COVID infection. Considering the effect the COVID has on the vagus nerve, which we'll discuss in just a moment, it's not surprising that the virus is affecting the entire nerve bundle of cranial nerves 9, 10, and 11. Therefore, it's not surprising that people would complain about neck pain, difficulty swallowing, and a number of other potential symptoms caused by the vagus, which we'll discuss now. Before we do that, I want to point out that this is all relevant because atlas hypermobility causing direct pressure to this nerve bundle would produce the same symptoms as an infection of the nerve bundle. In other words, a person with post-COVID neuritis would have the same symptoms as someone with Ehlers-Danlos hypermobility. Now just imagine what it would look like if they had both. So the first thing about the vagus is a simple screening tool to know when there's a problem. Simple uvula elevation is the perfect tool for this purpose. Have the patient open and say, ah, the uvula should move straight up. If the uvula deviates to one side or the other, the side it deviates away from is the side of insufficiency. Think of it as the paralyzed muscle. This works for people with Ehlers-Danlos, but also for people with vagus symptoms post-COVID infection. Another simple sign, but difficult to test, is that the patient might begin to snore. This is due to the fact that the vagus controls muscles of the mouth, 
that when fully contracted, open the airway, and when paralyzed, they will close the airway, thus snoring. I think it's wise to think of this not in terms of vagal dysfunction, but whenever the vagus is suspected, it should be assumed that the glossopharyngeal and accessory nerves are also affected. Clinically speaking, when the left vagus is affected, gut issues will usually arise. This is due to the fact that the vagus nerve controls gut permeability and is therefore the hidden factor behind leaky gut syndrome. When the right vagus is affected, the clinical picture usually shows up with heart issues. When we say heart issues, we don't mean atherosclerosis or some kind of valve prolapse, but we're talking about changes in the electrical system of the heart. These usually show up as forms of arrhythmias. This is due to the fact that the primary innervation of the SA node is the right vagus nerve. Remember, it's not a cookbook, it's physiology. In case you didn't know the primary innervation of the AV node, it's the left vagus. But it's the SA node that functions as the pacemaker. That's why the right vagus problems are the ones that will upset the rhythm of the whole heart. I just have to say that I've seen more vagus problems post-COVID than I've ever seen in my life. And I've seen more upper cervical subluxations post-COVID than I have ever seen as well. The explanation for this is very simple. Have you wondered why there we are seeing more athletes finding themselves in health crisis and even dying than we do in the general public, who are obviously less healthy? Well, the reason athletes are going down is simply because they are athletes. Did you know that athletes, due to the challenges and physical demands that they put on their bodies, have more ACE2 receptors along their vagus nerves than members of the general public do? The very act of being an athlete increases your number of ACE2 receptors. Since the COVID spike protein attaches to and attacks the ACE2 receptors, you would expect the people with the most ACE2 receptors to be the most likely to be injured or to experience a cardiac event or to have their gut health fall apart due to permeability. I know a number of distance runners who are avid runners, but they only run for fun. This group has been very negatively affected by COVID, with many of them being unable to run due to being diagnosed with long COVID. Their long COVID is most likely a consequence of dysautonomia caused by their increased presence of ACE2 receptors that they developed from all their years of distance running. In fact, just two days ago, on January 7th, an Old Dominion University basketball player, a sophomore, by the way, went down with a cardiac event during a game. Basketball players do a lot of running, as you might imagine, so they're predisposed, just like soccer players. I think we should expect to see more of this over the coming year. Okay, now I've completely conflated Ehlers-Danlos hypermobility with long COVID dysautonomia. The point being, clinically they can look very similar due to the fact that the same anatomical structures are involved, and therefore, the symptomatology can also look nearly identical. The primary difference between the two is going to be whether you have subluxation of the C1 vertebra or hypermobility of the C1 vertebra. We don't often think of hypermobility as being symptom-causing, but C1 is the one unique vertebra in this regard, mostly, as I previously stated, because it subluxates anterior and not posterior where hypermobility can lead to a series of devastating symptoms. Well, I hope you found this helpful today and that it gave you some insight into the clinical difference between subluxation and hypermobility. If you're not a member of the Gonstead Clinical Studies Society, I would highly recommend that you become one. Your membership fees go directly toward performing Gonstead-relevant research, and we offer a number of great resources for doctors and students alike. Our student membership fees are very low, so every student should look at becoming a member. We're always interested in adding members outside the United States as well. So consider becoming a, a member no matter where you live, practice, or go to school. As always, I hope you have the very best week possible, 
and I'll see you again next time.